Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. No, you are not listening to this at 1.5 speed. It's just that uh, I've just spent the last uh, 25 minutes dealing with technical issues beyond all uh, mortal ken in a hotel with plumbing issues without beyond all mortal ken. And I'm very excited about this uh, uh, podcast today. You know, people back in the day used to call me the necromancer. Because, uh, well, for all sorts of reasons, it was a prison nickname. We don't have to get into details. But um, I am, in fact, re-embracing that nickname because I have brought back from the dead someone who is dead to me. None other than David French, occasional guest on Advisory Opinions and uh, New York Times columnist. Hello, David. Hey, Jonah. I feel like Lazarus, after Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, I'm tottering out of your own personal tomb you put me into. <laughs> um, first time that has been quoted on the remnant. Um, <laughs> so uh, first of all, just how's it going at the Times? It's going well. It's going well. I've I've written, I've gotten a few columns under my belt. I'm, uh, I just realized, of course, the biggest organization I've ever belonged to is the U.S. Army. But in the private sector, the Times is the biggest company I've worked for by miles. Um, I I had no idea. I I really didn't have a grasp of how big it was. Um, logged on to Slack and it said something like five thousand members, which is, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of people. But no, everything's going well. People have been fantastic, very welcoming. Um, yeah, I I've enjoyed working with the team so far. It's going great. So you know how in like the U.S. Army, I think the rule of thumb, you'd know this better than I would, is that for every one combat soldier, frontline soldier, there are like eight. It's somewhere in the logistics and yeah. the back. I could swear that the New York Times, I, I thought the number was that they had something like 1,500 reporters. So do you think the ratio, the sort of uh, support to combat, as it were, ratio is greater for the New York Times than it is for the U.S. military? <laughs> We're about the same. I don't know. I mean, there's a good group of people supporting. And then there's, you know, the Times is a big media enterprise just beyond the, the actual newspaper itself. So you've got like a wire cutter, which is the like the Times version of Consumer Reports. And uh, you've got the whole food part of the Times and you've got games. At the, like there's a, there's a whole universe here. And the kind of the fun thing is you you all go through the same orientation. Everybody goes through the same orientation. And so uh, you kind of see the the different variety of people and the different parts of the times that uh, are joining with you. And uh, yeah, it's a 
it's a news organ it's a news organization that's got a lot going on <laughs> um yeah well you know i i i think you should learn as much as you can on the job over there and you know and then when my prediction comes true that you get canceled in about now 17 months um and come crawling back to us uh you know <laughs> you, should, you should have stories to tell what was the prediction for the total time i think 18 months was my uh was my ballpark so um, I, I, it's, it's hard for your contrarian stuff to kick in where you start punching more leftward amidst all of this Fox stuff. Um, so it, it may be, that it's more like 24 months for that part to die down. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm still fairly confident in my prediction and maybe you'll bring some people with you too. It'll be great. Like whole <laughs> refugees coming off a boat from the times. So. Oh man, that all sounds kind of painful, Jonah. <laughs> Not for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put not too fine a point on it, I am living in the mother of all I told you so moments. Um, and uh, you know, so like having another opportunity to say I told you so would be would would be welcome indeed. Yeah, of course I want what's best for you, even though you yes, are in fact dead. Of course. I know I <laughs> I know that's your priority. And you are living in I told you so moment. I mean, you are like at the peak of your I told you so powers right now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as you know, I mean, well, I guess we should get I want I have some law stuff I want to I want to hold your feet to the fire on. But since we we backed in this way. Um, so I've actually, you know, part of my deal when I went to CNN was that I was not going to become the professional Fox bashing guy. I had my say. Steve had his say move on, you know, not, it's not to say that I refuse to ever talk about Fox, but I was just sort of like, this is not my brand is to be like professional Fox basher. I, I didn't like the way Brian Stelter covered a lot of, um, basically considered media criticism to be covering Fox news. And I just think that kind of obsession can drive people crazy. And I'm not obsessed with Fox and I have a nuanced view on it. That said, when the Dominion, when this latest Dominion stuff came out and I got the all clear that I could reveal that I had been deposed by Dominion, someone at CNN asked me, so what would be your gen the general thrust of your uh, take? And I'll, I'll PGify it and just say something along the lines of, I told you so, mother blankers. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of how I feel about this, because like, you know my whole criticism of Fox and the right for the last seven years has been people are saying things they don't believe to be true to the point where they're convincing them that they're true. And so the kind of the remarkable thing about the the releases from dominion is that a lot of these people still didn't think they were true, even though I kind of thought they had convinced themselves, but like, like the fact that Hannity wasn't all in on it was actually kind of shocking to me. It's not an exoneration of them, but it's, it was kind of shocking to me. So like, what is your overall, I mean, I read your New York times take on it and all that. We're, you know, what was your initial reaction to all this stuff? Okay, so my initial reaction was viewing it through the lens of being a former litigator. And through that lens was, holy smokes, this never happens. So, and, and this is what I mean by, normally when you file a case, if you're doing your job well, you file a case that is, can already contains evidence that you believe can get you to trial, and that if you can present that evidence well to a jury, can can win at trial. So you want to have your ducks in a row when you file the case. It's a bad idea to say, well, I know many things, but 
for me to really win, I have to kind of hope that when I actually get discovery, I'll get the evidence that I need. Because what you really do is you're wanting to say, I have the evidence right now. And then if discovery gives me more evidence, great. Um, but I'm filing based on what I have. And when you read the Dominion complaint, they had a lot, like they had a lot, but then the discovery comes through and you have not just one person, not just two people, not just three people, but multiple people in writing saying that the things that they're putting on air, they know to be nuts, deranged, crazy. I mean, you name it. And, and that's what was so shocking to me because I already knew it was a Fox News scandal. But then through my, you know, my litigation life, looking at it and saying, wait a minute, to use a term from the, the, the movie, A Few Good Men, it's person after person after person admitting they ordered the code red, one after the other after the other. And all that you're left with is a defense for Fox is really okay that this New York Times v. Sullivan standard is so lenient that our explanation that we put things that we knew to be false on air because they were quote unquote newsworthy, you got to like hope and pray that that's your, that's your thread. That's, that's your, the, the very slender thread you're hanging on to. But I was really surprised. Um, you do not usually get this kind of evidence in discovery in a case. You just, you just don't. The, when Rupert says it wasn't red or blue, it was green. And he put Lindell back on to view his nonsense because he buys a lot of ads for the network. I mean, I had joked on CNN and kind of fell flat that that was when um, Rupert's lawyers took out the black tar heroin and started tying off their arms. I mean, like, <laughs> you're, just, you're just not supposed to say it. You know, no, <laughs> no, but it had been texted. It had been emailed. It It really is. You know, if you took the darkest vision of what somebody on the right who's grown up hearing about mainstream media bias, if you took their sort of their darkest vision of what like CNN is behind closed doors, um, typing and emailing to each other about, well, we're going to beat the Republicans with a fake story. <laughs> you know, if the, this was your wildest imagination, but it was it was the right's own network. <laughs> And it was behaving in sort of the mo the way in which people would have imagined in their work worst, you know, sort of their darkest uh, note in their darkest ideas about how the rest of the media operates. This is how Fox was doing it and putting it in writing. It's it's really stunning. I, it's just really stunning. Yeah. So I mean, this is worth getting at for a second, and then I want to get back to the the legal thing. But like, this is something that a lot of our friends on the right for a long time have always struggled to deal with when thinking about mainstream media bias is the sociology of it has a lot more to do with groupthink than yes. with, del with deliberate villainy. Right. And so like, I, I am sure that Dan rather and his team thought they had the memo gate thing nailed. Right. Or at least they, they thought it, it was good enough for air to be sure. It wasn't like they thought they were doing something duplicitous or dishonest they thought the story was true they ran with it but they were so caught up in groupthink that they couldn't imagine there was no 10th man to say hey you know let's not have an orthodontist 
validate these fonts, you know, let's, let's go do something else. And I think a lot of problem with media bias has to do with the fact that there's nobody in the room who knows that the story, who doesn't want the story to be really, really true often. And I don't think that's the case with the right wing stuff, at least not the stuff with, with Fox right now. Um, and I think that that's a, it's, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to believe because they're doing a lot of what, a, what about now too, where they say, well, what if we got, you know, if we got secret texts at MSNBC or Fox, we'd find out all sorts of things. I think you'd find out all sorts of damning things. I'm not sure you'd find out the, find the equivalent of this. No, I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you and I have both been part of both conservative and mainstream media organizations. Uh, and see text, see Slack ma messages, understand the culture of the place. And I would back you up 100% on this, that a lot of the problems that you see are problems of groupthink in multiple radiating ways. And so, for example, if everyone is sort of on the same page, they can be gullible in a way that they wouldn't be if gullible with friends, for example, in a way that they wouldn't be if there's even one person in there to say, ah, oh, that doesn't add up or excessively skeptical or excessively, uh, excessively skeptical of claims that sort of, you know, gore the, the ox of their own side. And so you see this kind of uh, natural consequence of groupthink throw on top of it. Every organization is going to have some incompetent people in it. And you've got the recipe for the vast majority of what ails a lot of more mainstream media organizations, which is one of the reasons why I've been banging the drum for years um, in a lot of these big institutions that are very, very, very deep blue. They need viewpoint diversity. They need viewpoint diversity. It's more healthy for the organization to have it. It's going to make them a better organization. Harvard would be a better university with more conservative faculty. Uh, any given mainstream media organization would be a better organization with more diverse viewpoints represented. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these, a lot of these organizations get it when they say, well, wait, we would have a really hard time covering race in America with an all white newsroom, that there is a diversity and a breadth of experience that comes along with ethnic diversity. But there's this sort of block when it comes to uh, viewpoint diversity. There's often, not always, a block when it comes to religious diversity. Uh, you know, if a giant percentage of the United States of America is evangelical and you can't even think of a single maybe evangelical who works in your, in your organization, maybe there's some Maybe there you you might be cruising towards some towards some groupthink and and so that's that's one of the reasons why I've been beating that drum for years and years and years. Yeah, although I gotta say I've always I I mean I I obviously we pretty much agree, but like I've always had problems with the racial diversity argument. I mean I agree with the racial diversity argument. I agree with the gender diversity argument as far as they go. But I don't think they go as far as a lot of people think they do insofar as, you know, the National Association of Newspapers um, or the American, American Society of Newspapers had the second, third most rigorous quota, racial hiring quota regime of any organization I knew of years ago. Right. I don't know where they stand now. I don't know what the guidelines are, all the rest. But 
let's just say for the sake of argument, you've got an out, you've got a media outlet that has a very robust to the point of, you know, borderline quota, but very robust affirmative action program. And you've got an editor who benefited from it. And you've got a line reporter who's white. I am not sure that the racial diversity argument is as conducive to divergent points of view as a lot of people think it is. I think that there is a tendency to sort of shut down disagreement on that and that there's a real terror about seeming like you're racist in that kind of environment. And so I think that sometimes it actually can foster a, a kind of groupthink that um, that you might not have if you had an all-white thing. Now, I am not arguing for an all-white newsroom anywhere. I'm just saying that it's a complicated social dynamic when you've got a lot of young white liberals who are full of white guilt dealing with a lot of people up the chain of command who are black liberals or female liberals, and you're trying to talk about a very thorny public policy question, um, I think you can get some enforced conformity, which is what I, what I think you get at a lot of universities as well. Well, I think one of the things that happens at a lot of more progressive institutions is maybe a, almost the reverse, of, the reverse of that. So the power structure in most of progressive America is still largely white. And so you've got a largely white progressive power structure that's trying to increase diversity. And a lot of times what they do is they look at diversity and they say, we want to hire non-white voices who agree with us. And so, so what you end up with is a situation where, yeah, there's more racial diversity, but at the same time, there's still the dominant political ideology. There's still conformity with the dominant political ideology, and they're going to mainly want to hear uh, from black voices or from Hispanic voices who confirm their pre-existing ideological biases. But I note that I think that's getting harder and harder because, um, you know, w one of the really interesting realities of the current moment is that, and this is super well documented, white progressives, the white progressives in the Democratic coalition are far more progressive than the non-white members of the Democratic coalition. So if you're going to look at the Democratic Party as a coalition, the non-white community in the Democratic coalition is by and large more moderate, even sometimes leaning conservative, than the white progressive part of the Democratic coalition. And that has created, there are culture clashes as a result. So for example, I've written about this as well. There's a pretty big God gap in the Democratic coalition where your black Democrats are as church going as white evangelicals and the least church going cohort uh, in the coalition are white progressives tend to be far, far, far more secular. And so I do think that there is this interesting tension that is emerging on the broader left between a white progressive power structure that is still disproportionately in charge and a, the, the large, large number of non-white members of the coalition who tend to be in the aggregate, not any given individual, but in the aggregate, more religious and more moderate. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this back when you were at a superior news organization um, quite a bit. And um, the, 
the voters who won the nomination for Biden, you know, the middle-aged African-American women of South Carolina, way to the right of like your typical MSNBC, you know, associate producer or whatever, um, which is not to say they're right wing, but like, you know, like they go to church, they want cops to do their jobs well, but like they still want there to be cops, you know, um, all right, but let's get back to it. Cause I, 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 even as, as much as I have fun predicting your cancellation of the New York times, talking about racial quotas in newsrooms and whatnot, I am not, uh, I, I am not trying to hasten the timeline for this. You need to get a little more seasoned over there and I don't want to get you in trouble. But so this, this argument that is coming from Fox in response to dominion, and then this is a legal question I have for you. Uh, like, I know where you stand on the debate part of it, right? Which is sort of like right or wrong kind of thing. But as a legal question, so they're falling back very earnestly and very, you know, intensely on this claim that the reason why they had Sidney Powell and all these people and on on Mary Bartiromo and Lou Dobbs and you know, Hannity and Tucker and whatever is that this was a big story. The president of the United States was saying that the election was stolen and that there was massive fraud. And so they were having these people on opinion shows because it was a big story and it was part of their coverage. Now, the problem with that, it seems to me, is that there was a logical gap, is that they weren't having an equal number or even very many people saying, this is all garbage, they're lying to you on, right? They were just having people giving one side of it and they weren't correcting them. If you go back and you look at the transcripts, Mary Bartiromo doesn't say, um, well, hold on a second. You know, we, there's no evidence for that. Or so-and-so says this or whatever. Lou Dobbs, none of those guys really did that. They let these people say these things unchallenged. How is that news coverage? Right? I mean, that's my problem. It's a legal argument. How can you say, well, we were just covering it as news? And that's why our opinion side overwhelmingly gave oxygen to something that we knew was untrue without rebutting it at all. And then we actually attacked the news side when they tried to rebut that stuff. How does that argument work in a court? So let me let me give you sort of the best case scenario for Fox and sort of give an answer to it. So the best case scenario for Fox is, wait, look, I mean, come on, court, come on, jury, <laughs> jury. And it, the, it, they'll, they'll likely be talking to a jury, but they'll also be talking to a court. And come on, court. We had the most powerful person in the world and his legal team making legal arguments that were the number one news story in the world. And that meant we had to cover their arguments. We had to covering their arguments. Now, it's a it's just how much we did it is editorial judgment. You know, if CNN did less of Sidney Powell and we do more of Sidney Powell or if CNN chose no just to talk about Sidney Powell and not host Sidney Powell. That's editorial judgment. That's how news organizations work. This was a big story. These claims were a big story. And, and if I'm Fox's lawyer, that's what I'm doing. I'm standing up in front of the jury and I'm saying the very first thing that you have to understand, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this case isn't about whether Sidney Powell was right or Rudy Giuliani was right. Let's just stipulate from the beginning that they were completely wrong that they're every bit as wrong as the Fox personalities said they were privately. Let's just stipulate all of that. The issue is, can a news organization cover a live news event through the people who are making the news? 
Sydney Powell's actually filing lawsuits and making complaints. Can we do that? And if that's the posture and if that's the framing for a jury, so to speak, then Fox has a fighting chance. And if I'm Dominion, here's how I answer that. Okay, that's all well and good to say I'm covering a live dispute and I'm covering it through the newsmakers. But I'm going to tell you situation A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, where you didn't cover them in the way that you would cover normal newsmakers. You were hyping them. You were agreeing with them. You were making your own statements in support of them. That, and so the heart of Dominion's case actually isn't going to be whatever craziness Sidney Powell said or Rudy said on air. The heart of their case is going to be, what did Fox say? What did these people at Fox say? That's going to be a big, big, big part of that case. And then the other part of it is going to be, okay, does the evidence say that you brought them on out of legitimate desire to engage in news and news gathering and reporting? Or is the evidence going to say that you brought them on specifically to say false things, specifically to say false things to appease your audience? And so in that circumstance, what you're saying is not you would be saying, ladies and gentlemen, don't be fooled. This isn't, wasn't news reporting the way you think of news reporting. What this was, was we were bringing these people on to say things we knew to be false without rebutting the falsehood to appease the audience. And so we were participants, sort of co-conspirators in the spreading of the falsehood. And so there's your Fox argument and there's your answer to it. This is a legal question, but it's more of a legal um, corporate strategy, right? You dealt with risk assessment and, you know, all that kind of like um, decision tree kind of thing. So on the one hand, it feels like Fox is in the same bind it's always been, where they can't really talk about this stuff for fear of pissing off Trump and pissing off the audience, right? They can't even now, I mean, like, well, let me back up before I, before I get to that question. What is the actual legal, like, as a, again, as a lawyer, right? Not right or wrong, but, you know, the, the soulless, sinister, cynical, right. mercenary work that you lawyers do. Um, <laughs> the fact that, that, see, that the Fox simply will not cover the Dominion suit at all, Right. Is that something that pretty much any lawyer would tell them to do? Or is that something that you think is not necessary legally as a legal strategy, but is necessary for a sort of a marketing thing to avoid pissing off the audience one way or the other? Um, so news organizations cover scandal in the news organization all the time. <laughs> so... I mean, this is something that is, and they cover lawsuits brought against their own organization all of the time. And incompetent news organizations know how to wall off news and opinion. They know how to create internal teams that are, to use a term, um, you know, a term of that we we would use in in the law, like they we would call it a Chinese wall, where you create an internal team that's walled off from everybody else. Um, you see this. You, I, I have seen news organizations expose to the public their own scandal. Uh, 
One of the more recent examples of this is uh, Christianity Today uh, commissioned one of their own reporters, one of their best reporters, to report out allegations of sexual misconduct against a former editor-in-chief of the magazine. So they reported out their own scandal in a way that really aired a ton of dirty laundry. (laughs) And so um, the idea that there is somehow, it is somehow not possible for a news organization to report out its own scandal is just wrong. Now, if I'm a lawyer and I'm advising a news organization that has got the kind of evidence in the organization that we have seen, and we haven't seen all of it because there are redacted portions, if I have only my legal cap on and have zero concern for the integrity of the organization, I'm just trying to protect it from liability, I would be saying, don't say anything about this. Don't have anyone write anything about this because when one of the things you would have is then the lawyer for the other side holding up the Fox article, you know, reporting out the wrongdoing, right? Fox News is shows if you if you don't believe me that Fox News did this, believe Fox News when it reports that it. And so, you know, if you're if you're just looking at it solely through the lens of liability and minimizing liability and you don't care a bit about sort of the underlying integrity and reputation of the organization, I can easily see a lawyer saying don't report on this. Don't mention this. Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, um, the Wall Street Journal yesterday had it didn't really break a lot of new ground, but it had a pretty thorough summary of what we know about what Fox's editorial leadership did. You know what we've learned from Dominion, all that. And um, I was talking to somebody. I'll keep their name out of it for the time being deeply interested in this as well um and and he made the point that the fact that these are considered established facts by the crown jewel of Rupert Murdoch's own journalistic empire is not good for fox right there wasn't anything in there that disputed the narrative as told to by the washington post or the new york times now admittedly Wall Street Journal is not Fox News, but like for a jury, that's the sec sort of the next best thing is to say, well, look, Rupert's own, you know, Wall Street Journal agrees with, you know, our interpretation of this on the facts, at least. Right. And, you know, the the interesting thing about it is the actual evidence you've gotten from the internal emails and the in the, the text message and everything is so dramatic that the Wall Street Journal reporting on it. What, what would be less than the icing on the cake? It's like the chocolate sprinkles on the icing on the cake. Because you've got the cake, you've got the cake, all the internal stuff. You've got the icing on the cake, which is, you know, the, the sort of the, the follow-up, the evidence that's going to be behind the redactions. That's stuff we don't know. And then you've got the Wall Street Journal basically saying, yeah, yeah, this is, what's, this is what was in discovery. Well, the Wall Street Journal is not breaking news at that point. It's just describing all of the information that's already there. And so it's it's compared to the relevance of everything else. And the same way, way Fox reported on it, unless it broke news, that here's a new email or another text message that wasn't in the case record, just reporting on what's in, already in the, the record of the case isn't. It's not a material factor, like legally, it's not a material factor. 
So, all right. So back to the question I wanted to ask you, and this is more about corporate strategy than, than strictly speaking the law, but like it's at first blush, I was thinking Fox is basically in the same position it was in 2020, you know, where if they deal with this stuff directly and come clean and fire people, um, you know, Tucker and Sean and Laura, they'll go off to Newsmax and OAN and blah, 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 blah. And then I thought about it for a little bit, and I'm not so sure that's right. Because first of all, it depends how you do the what the contracts are and the severance and all that kind of thing. But put that aside, if Fox, I mean, you just tell me where I'm wrong about this, because I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm missing something. Let's say Fox settled for something less than a billion dollars, 900, 900 million. million. Yeah. yeah. 900 million, <laughs> a clean 900 million. But Fox had to admit they were wrong, right? There has to be some sort of public statement um, saying we screwed this up. There is no evidence for any of this about Dominion, Smartmatic, whatever, right? Say they do that. Doesn't that make the lawsuits against OAN and Newsmax just even more of a slam dunk? And if so, don't those guys, from what I've read, those guys can't afford the settlement that, <laughs> that Dominion is. So couldn't Fox, in fact, take out its competition by doing the right thing? That's my question. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. So if Fox settles, um, <laughs> if Fox settles, the, the fact that Fox settles is not going to be terribly relevant to the actual case against Dominion and OAN, which is going to re rest on the facts and, and, applying to uh news i said dominion no newsmax and oan they've got their own facts they've got their own allegations and the fact that fox settled is not something that's really going to be relevant to the the newsmax and oan case um and newsmax and oan may look at a situation where if you've got a tucker who's fired if you've got a which i mean like this is this is a hypothetical world, right? Uh, I don't see Fox taking any action against any of these individuals, but let's just imagine that they did. They might say, look, um, the long-term financial benefit to us of bringing over Tucker is going to be over time bigger than the financial hit we take over the past misconduct conduct and and look, we'll just try to use our own risk management strategies to keep Tucker, you know, within bounds or Laura Ingram within bounds. However, but the actual financial benefit to us of bringing over that big, big, big personality is going to be more than the liability risk because all of the stuff in the past is already just baked in. They did what they did, right? And they're going to be accountable or not based on all of that information in the past. And I could easily imagine Fox sitting there going, if we take dramatic action, two things will happen. One, our audience will accuse us of cancel culture, the mortal sin. Um, never mind that Fox has been a practitioner of cancel culture for a long time, but our audience will ac accuse us of cancel culture. Our audience will be volcanically angry. And to the extent that, um, that, that Donald Trump is still sort of the 800-pound gorilla of the right, he will wear us out. Uh, we'll be out on an island. I wouldn't. We won't expect Ron DeSantis to come to our aid, or any who who's going to come to our aid. So I can easily see them saying, in the absence of a moral reformation, which we don't see any sign of, um, it's saying, look, we have to just gut through this as best we can, 
because if we take own up to what we did and we take responsibility and we take the actions that a decent organization would take to hold people accountable and to and to build trust back with the audience that's a giant amount of downside for them it's just a giant amount of downside corporate downside now it could very well be the case that ultimately at the end of the day the financial hit that they take is so great that it causes a reassessment um I don't know. You know, we, we just have to wait and see how this case comes out. It's, it is the law that news organizations, when they're speaking about public figures or really anybody, when they're speaking about public entities, have a huge amount of protection from defamation liability. They're arresting everything on that right now, which is kind of funny that, you know, Ron DeSantis tries to erode New York Times v. Sullivan. I wish somebody would call that the Fox News Accountability Act and see, see how, how it does after that. But, um, you know, look, it's a matter of, of just dollars and cents going forward. They have a huge amount of downside risk that's baked in based on past conduct. But I can also see for them downside risk in, in taking accountability for what they did. And, and that's a terrible, they're just in a terrible predicament right now. Yeah. All right. I want to move off of Fox Off in part because uh, we are in the process of doing a a very special remnant with me, Chris, and Steve um, that will be coming down the pike in a while. It will be a live event, where at least that's the plan. So, um, and I don't want to like just, I also just don't want to just dwell on this too much longer, but, um, um, I, and I, because I want to get to something else. So I've been thinking about this ever since you said something on uh, that podcast you occasionally are a guest on, uh, Advisory Opinions. Um, for the record, I told Sarah that she should every single episode announce we're really excited about today's guest, and then it just be you every single time. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that would be. But I, I guess you know, no one listens. To she me. does a version of that. She does like she introduces me differently every time. Um, but uh, and for listeners who don't understand, part of David's deal with the New York Times is he couldn't host a podcast. Um, a non-New York Times podcast. And so he is a, officially a guest now on advisory opinions. But anyway, you said something which a lot of other people have said, and a lot of lawyers said, and I've talked to other lawyers about it, and they all basically agree to one extent or another. So I'm not signaling you out, right? I'm signaling out the United States of America for being in a screwed up situation. <laughs> when you were talking about um, the student loan case, right? You said something like, if they can get past the standing issue, this is going to this is going to be nuked from orbit, right? That it's going to fail. Roberts is going to they're all going to kill it. They're going to, it's going to be the Night's Watch taking turns stabbing Jon Snow, right? They're going to take this thing out, um, but they may not be able to get past standing. And what I mean by that, which you'll explain in better terms in a second, is that the way this thing was done is that that the way Biden's thing was done, it's hard to make an argument that someone has skin in the game enough that they have standing in court to sue. Now, we don't have to get deep in the weeds of the, of the specifics of the student loan stuff, um, which you guys have covered really, really well. There is something really messed up about our constitutional order that you can have widespread agreement that a lawless and argue and con let's just say for the sake of argument, lawless and unconstitutional act by a president of the United States, that if you design it in a way 
that you can't figure out how someone can sue, there's no stopping it, and the Supreme Court just has to allow it, right? Um, standing is, is not a constitutional doctrine. It is simply like a judicial, uh, you know, common law, rule of thumb, presidential thing to manage workflow. Um, I know part of your answer is going to be, well, part of the problem is that Congress could fix this really easily by just saying you can't steal our prerogatives, but they're not going to do that. So isn't this actually a kind of a dangerous precedent that, that presidents going forward, if this thing stands up, um, can just simply rummage through old drawers, looking for old laws, find some weird phrase and craft an executive order to the tune of billions of dollars, whether it's about a wall with Mexico or, or whatever. And so long as no one can find standing to sue, there's just zero that can be done about it. Yes, it's dangerous. And I don't know a way around it within the system. And, I, and I'll explain what I mean, because the bottom line, the traditional rule of standing is that if I'm going to go to court, I have to demonstrate that I, that I, either me or the organization that I'm a part of, has suffered an actual harm as a result of the legal, uh, of, the of the action that I claim is illegal. So it's what the phrase will be concrete, particularized injury. It's not that um, I'm just claiming this is illegal and I want somebody to stop the thing that is illegal. It is, it is I have been harmed. And so why do you have that rule? Well, one is just a matter of sort of judicial economy. Um, I can't even imagine a system where you would have any person is capable of saying that any given action is unlawful and they can walk into court, have a judge hear it, issue an order, stop the action, whatever that action might be, regardless of whether it harmed me or not. That is a, um, that's a recipe for chaos. It's especially a recipe for chaos in a continental sized, um, you know, uh, democracy with hundreds and hundreds of courts and, uh, you know, in the federal courts, what we have is a situation with these nationwide injunctions, for example, where you can find if 49 judges rule against you and the 50th judge rules for you, you get your nationwide injunction. That's already a, a big problem. So you've got a judicial economy issue. You also have a separation of powers issue because if you essentially say that the judicial branch is the final, the arbiter of constitutionality on all government actions, then you've got a recipe where essentially every single thing that a president or Congress does is going to have, is going to have to have a judicial sign off. And so all of a sudden what you've done is you've taken sort of the least democratic branch of government and you've placed it at the apex of American power. That it, it's unquestionably the apex. Everything has to go through the Supreme Court before it can be. It, it can uh, take force of law. Now, people file suit on anything. You know, people file suit all the time um, when they don't have standing, and so courts actually hear those cases to kick them on a standing basis. But you would really start to upset the basic constitutional order in some pretty important ways if you said that this at every single action of the elected branches of government is going to have to get a judicial sign off. And then any given individual, no matter the tenuousness of my relationship to the undertaking, has a chance to go into court. It's a, a, a recipe for chaos, B, completely upsets the balance of power amongst the branches, 
Um, and you would reach a point where you would have the you would have the Supreme Court of the United States signing off on any given military action, for example. So a president gets unfolding intelligence that there might be an imminent strike. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you mobilize some air wings and an aircraft carrier strike a task force and a sailor files an emergency motion for an injunction because <laughs> they're sailing into harm's way. And the argument is, well, it looks like the president might strike before Congress declares war. And the president says, wait a minute, we've got an imminent you know, I'm acting in response to an imminent threat and here's the intel. And then the court's going to decide whether this is commander in chief authority or whether this is, you know, Article One declaration of war authority. And you begin to see how it could paralyze uh, the American government at critical moments. And then also it diminishes the responsibility of the elected branches of government to defend the Constitution themselves. We've had some really bad decisions from the elected branches when they they basically pass unconstitutional legislation or enact unconstitutional regulations and say, ah, the courts will take care of it. No, every branch of government has a responsibility to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. So that's sort of a, a, a longish answer to the question. Yeah, no, I, I, obviously I agree with a lot of that, you know, and I've, I, you know, I've often, you know, said there are lots of things that are unconstitutional the court can't touch, like, like it's just not going to get itself involved in you know, war power stuff like, you know, like there's a very strong argument that the Constitution forbids the president from just doing what he's been doing for the last 70 years. And, you know, but Congress is not going to get between the president and the Congress. I mean, the, the court's not going to get between the president and Congress on that. You know, they won't even get in between this thing, which I think is I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong. It's black letter law in the Constitution that you can't be a member of the army and a member of Congress. And yet you have all sorts of people who are in the National Guard who are in Congress. Um, that's a sort of a flat thing that the court just said, yeah, we're not going to do with it. I remember Judge Bork saying, you know, look, there's a pretty good case that paper money is unconstitutional, but like that ship has sailed. <laughs> and so I, I get that there are things that the court shouldn't touch. That's fine. At the same time, like I have a bit of a problem with your answer insofar as you're throwing up um, totally legitimate horribles about what would happen if we tweaked the doctrine of standing a little bit or even passed a law to tweak the doctrine of standing a little bit. And I, and, and my response is, is like, look at the horribles we have right now. You just had the president of the United States issue an UCAS or an edict, you know, or a fatwa saying, I'm just going to give the core members of my own coalition billions and billions of dollars, even though um, there's no there's no way the Heroes Act was intended for anything like this. Right. And um, and you're telling me that if we if, if the friggin loan servicing outfit in Missouri can't sue for this there's no stopping him because congress isn't going to do his problem and so look i think we both agree that if congress this is the, fundamentally like look when you knock out one leg of a three-legged school stool bad things happen right the, i think the founding fathers screwed up in that they never intended they never foresaw and i kind of get it that congress would not be a zealous guardian of its prerogatives and power and 
there was a good reason to think that they were going to be right about that for a really long time until they stopped being right about it. And it has stuff to do with the ele electronic media and all sorts of incentive structures and primaries and yada, yada, yada. But it, unless you have a plan for how to make Congress, you know, how to like um, grow a, a new set of testicular fortitude generators for the, um, the Congress, um, I think we got to think creatively about like how this is going to work going down, going forward. Well, two, two things uh, in response to that. One, the dirty little secret that isn't in the, even a secret anymore is that standing doctrine has been evolving quite a bit to the point where the standing is not hard anymore. Um, it's actually not difficult to get standing to challenge a whole host of executive actions. And we've even seen that under this more conservative court. The Roberts court heard a number of challenges to Trump administration actions that before then heard a number of challenges to Obama administration actions where the standing argument was a little bit attenuated. So standing doctrine has already been expanding. And number two, the student loan case isn't necessarily the actually the best case for saying that standing doctrine is broken because we know there was an entity that absolutely has standing. It's Mohella, the organization, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Administrator Organization, that it has standing. It didn't bring the lawsuit, though. Missouri brought the lawsuit with other state governments. And one of the questions in the in the oral argument was, why didn't Mohella bring the lawsuit? Because it's got standing. And the answer was, well, Missouri politics. That's not a good answer. That's not a good answer. So the, the student loan case is sort of a, we know there's an entity. We know there's an entity that has standing. It just didn't sue. And, and that's a, that's an interesting issue here in the case. But I would say that the standing, standing has, doctrine has been expanding. Um, there have been a number of cases that have been heard just in the last five to six years that if you were talking to law school age, David, I would say, huh, I don't know that you're going to have standing for that case. And, and so, you know, there's, there, standing doctrine is expanding in, and I think in some healthy ways, but I think if you disconnect access to courts from concrete and particularized injury, you're upsetting even more than it's already upset the balance of power between the, the branches of government. Yeah, I'm again, I'm very sympathetic to that. And like one of the things that people need to remember, which you've talked about is like for the last 30 years, the people who most want to expand standing have been on the left. You know, so that rivers can sue and frogs can sue and all this kind of stuff, right? And um, uh, and it's interesting. A friend, a lawyer friend of mine, pointed this out that, like, it, for understandable reasons, somewhat because of of Dobbs, but um, like the standing thing, working, getting around the standing stuff is why that Texas law was written the way it was about abortion, right? And um, uh, it's sort of the opposite, you know, of what all this stuff is. And it's just kind of weird that it hasn't been part, more of a part of the conversation a little bit. Um, I'm with you. I just, uh, it just seems to me that as we move forward, we're going to have a lot more DACAs and a lot more of these student loan things that are designed as a way. Because if you, you know, this has been a complaint of mine for a long time. I've written 7,500 to 10 million uh, columns about this. If you listen to the Democrat primaries 
and it's getting it's happening on the Republican side now too, but it's much worse on the Democratic side. They say the first thing, you know, day one, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. You know, Elizabeth Warren says day one, when I'm elected president, I'm going to, you know, seize the means of production and ban guns and all this kind of stuff. And like, none of these things are constitutional. None of these things are possible day one with an executive order. But if this practice gets worse and worse and worse, you can kind of finagle it. And the utter abdication of the mainstream media in this, where they're Every news story about this is about why this means a lot to people with student debt, not whether it's legal or illegal, to me is a sign of the corruption of populism and, and that, that, that people are in the mainstream media are utterly blind to in their own side. They just have this amazing blind spot that if, if the beneficiaries are beneficiaries that they like, that they think are deserving... It's all about emotion, bending the law. And when, if Trump came at this, if, if, if President Trump, as I put it in the column recently, said we're going to abolish tax deductions for luxury second homes to pay for the wall, everyone would understand how outrageous that is and lawless that is. But because it's going towards you know, young, struggling people with student loans, concern about it being against the law and constitutional is utterly absent from vast swaths of the conversation in the mainstream media on this stuff. Well, this is a persistent problem in coverage of legal issues generally. So, and, and I've noticed it my entire career when you're talking about civil liberties in particular. So if you're talking about religious freedom or free speech or due process and all of this, the way a lot of this in, tends to be covered is, I, who is the good guy and who is the bad guy and I want the bad guy to lose. I don't care how you get A to B, but the bad guy should lose. Um, and here's a perfect example. You know, when Hobby Lobby refused the contraceptive coverage for, it was four contraceptives that, argue, that Hobby Lobby argued were also abortifacients. A lot of the world got furious at Hobby Lobby. Um, Look, look at this intolerant company not wanting to give these four contraceptives. Now, they did give a bunch of other, you know, covered a bunch of other contraceptives. They look, they're not covering the whole suite of contraceptives. They need to lose because I'm in favor of companies covering contraceptives. That's kind of the way it these kinds of covered this coverage or the attitudes towards cases goes. Well, Hobby Lobby wins. Everyone's like, look at that win for the hard right. But that's not the way liberty works. So fast forward a few years, and there's a group of um, left-leaning, far left-leaning religious folks who are arrested, arrested because they are trespassing on federal land where they're not supposed to be, to provide food and water for illegal immigrants who are crossing the border in like the Arizona, I believe is Arizona, Arizona wilderness, right? And they're arrested. They're facing criminal charges for this trespass on federal lands. And they said, wait a minute, we have a religious liberty right. This burdens our religious liberty, which is asking us to care for the stranger, to care for people who are facing privation and starvation and hunger and all of what these, uh, you know, these immigrants are facing. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act protects our ability to exercise our faith in this way against this federal law criminalizing our activity. And they won. They won in federal court. The court dismissed the, their charges against them. And what was one of the cases that they cited? Hobby Lobby. This 
awful, terrible, evil case where the, you know, intolerant right, religious right was, you know, all the, you, you saw a lot of the opinions about that. But what happens when one person wins a, a, a when one person's civil liberties are vindicated, that vindicates your own civil liberties. The expansion of liberty of your political opponents is also the expansion of liberty for you. This is how legal precedents work. <laughs> and so it's gotten me, I'm very, uh, in fact, this, Jonah, this is obvious, honestly, one of the reasons why I got into writing and journalism to begin with is I was a lawyer litigating very controversial cases. And I got super frustrated with the way the media covered my own cases. So I started writing and submitting op-eds all over the place. When I'd file a case, I'd submit an op-ed because I didn't have confidence in the coverage. And this is a big, big problem in legal coverage. And it's a, a problem that's kind of universal. Um, we have not to really touch hot button issues, but let's touch hot button issues. We have these really huge fights right now between blue states and red states about parents and trans kids. And both blue and red states in different ways are undermining parental authority when it comes to trans kids. And I'm sitting there waving my arms in the air going, wait a minute, can we just put aside from the moment which side you fall on, on, you know, trans kids and ask, do we want the state interfering with parental responsibility for children in this way? And, and this is, this is a persistent this is a persistent problem uh, in coverage of legal issues. You look at, well, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? And people don't pay nearly as much attention to the underlying legal issue at stake. Yeah. I mean, so uh, two quick things on this. One, um, you know, I originally got this idea from Ace of Spades, which, and I've credited him a thousand times, but he's kind of lost his mind and keeps accusing me of plagiarism about it. And um, so anyway, this is the thousand and one time. You know, in film, they have this term, the MacGuffin, and it's just the thing that the hero wants, right? So no one even knows what's in the friggin' briefcase in Pulp Fiction, right? Uh, the Maltese Falcon. It doesn't matter. Just the thing the hero wants, and you want them to get it, and that's what the movie is about, right? Um, Ark of the Covenant. And um, we, fought, we cover presidents in this country like they're the hero in a movie, and they're trying to get their MacGuffin. And... The example I always use, which, you know, he pointed out, you know, back in the day was um, Barack Obama said, what, 18, 24 times, something like that, that he literally didn't have the power to do the DACA thing and he had to have Congress do it. And he would say, I'm not a king. I'm not a, you know, the Constitution, blah, blah, blah. blah. And he says, I'm not a tyrant. And then he goes and does it or he does a version of it. Right. And we can argue about whether he actually whatever. That's fine. The response from the mainstream media was. He got the MacGuffin. There was like no, like, wait a second. Didn't he say that was unconstitutional and now he's doing it, you know? And that's how the right, that's how Fox covers Trump, covered Trump when he was president. And it's the constitution stuff is only relevant when it's a hindrance to the other team. But the idea that it should be a hindrance to our team is something that is like really sorely lacking in, in, in the way we talk about all of this stuff. Yeah, that's and then the second thing I was going to bring up. But go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's 100 percent correct. And it's one we, reason why civil libertarians are among the are about the smallest tribe in America. 
because the the civil libertarians are saying, okay, okay, hold on. Um, between a Christian Bible study and a library and a drag queen in a library, what I'm interested in is access to the library, right? But and so, or between uh, you know, if you're if you're supporting due process, whether it's a uh, somebody who's accused of a crime in urban Chicago or somebody's accused of sexual assault in a university, everyone should get due process. Um, but different people on different partisan sides often have dramatically different views of free speech or of due process, depending on who's speaking or who's accused. But the advantage that a civil libertarian has is even if we're a tiny sliver, in any given case, we've always got a bunch of allies. <laughs> and so they're just not going to be the same allies every time. You reminded me with the second point I want to bring up. I want to push back a little bit on the, the drag queen thing and stipulated you've been treated wildly unfairly by a bunch of people who've quoted you out of context and uh, on the drag queen story hour stuff. And you were right. And so was wrong on the Frenchism garbage and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm trying to get into. That said, um, it seems to me like I was having this argument with a very good friend of mine, very libertarian friend of mine um, recently. And uh, and he was making a case that I generally agree with, which is that the anti-trans stuff, that both the trans stuff and the anti-trans stuff is kind of a social contagion, moral panic, overreaction, both sides. And I think that's actually largely true. I think that the idea that we've suddenly got you know, millions of people who say that they are non-binary is purely, uh, I'm not saying that there aren't any non-binary people. I'm saying that you can't have a thousand fold increase in the number without ascribing some, somewhat to so a, a, a social contagion, um, fad, you know, and I'm not trying to be dis, you know, disrespectful to the people who are, who are who sincerely believe it, but I, I just believe that to be true, and I haven't seen any arguments to persuade me otherwise. That said, um, I don't think that there is symmetry between some of the stuff that the right is focusing on and some of the stuff is the left is focusing on when it comes to the parental rights thing. Insofar as um, I asked my friend, what? let's say you're right, that this is some sort of St. Vitus's dance that is overtaking people. And all we need to do is w take our time to let it run through the system. Um, and it'll calm down. And I, I think that's generally right. But in the meantime, if you had a movement that said, oh, what you have to do is cut off the left arm of a 14 year old kid. Um, you would say, no, 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 no. Uh, the state needs to intervene on that. And to me, I don't see much difference between some of the hormonal or surgical things that are involved in gender reassignment for teenagers as being all that different because they're certainly as permanent um, and as life-changing and as altering as, as an amputation of a left arm. Um, and so I am more sympathetic to the idea of state intervention on that front than I am to sort of, state intervention on uh, drag queen story hours. Like if parents want to take their kids to one of these things, I really oppose it. I think there's something really weird about this idea that you cannot really respect or understand the importance of transgender people unless you go, unless you endorse 
strip shows for kids is a really weird argument. Like if I said in the 90s when we were arguing, or in the 2000s when we were arguing about gay people and gay marriage, if I said, look, you really don't understand what homosexuality is all about unless you go to a gay strip club. Andrew Sullivan would have had my head, but somehow that's the argument for the transgender stuff. Anyway, so I, my point is I just think the, the asymmetry thing is, is, is wrong or the, the symmetry thing between where the right is overreaching and where the left is overreaching. I don't think they're really talking about comparable things. Well, yes and no. So in the one sense that can the state say, for example, bar permanent life-altering medical procedures by minors that undergone by minors? Yes. Yes. Okay. Like if you look at California, which has extreme protections, such extreme protections for kids who want to um, get, you know, what they call gender affirming treatment or whatever in California, it has extreme protections, protection so strong it can override parental rights. Um, California also has a lot of limitations on when you can get a tattoo. <laughs> okay. So the ability of the state to say a, uh, a person, um, and minor child is limited in the acts in the way that they can access permanent life altering treatments, surgeries, drugs, et cetera. That's traditionally within the sphere of the state, right? That's traditionally within the sphere of the state. Now, the, the issue with the parental rights stuff is not, well, what happens if someone violates a pre-existing valid state law regarding this kind of treatment? It is someone obtains legally available treatment obtained in good faith after consultation with doctors and clinic and psychologists, et cetera, and they're a parent of a child and there's no breach between the parent and the child. Um, they are operating in good faith lawfully. And the state comes in and says, we're going to take your kid. Now that's a different deal. That's a different deal because so, um, and that's a situation that I think gets really dangerous because then you start to say, okay, well, you're starting to then expand the problem. One of the problems that I have with the way the left deals with this issue, where it's going to essentially say, we're going to have this California law regarding transitioning minors is a really scary thing to read, especially if you were a parent of a kid who wanted to transition and you had objections and you're working through this as a family and a family member could take them to California and not only under the statute would you have an ability to engage in some pretty dramatic treatments of this person, the ability of the parent to even find out about it would be limited. That's an incredible intrusion on parental rights. It should fall, in, a, in the event of a legal challenge, it should fall almost instantly. Like that, that or this idea that um, school officials are not going to tell parents um, about trans a, a kid who's transitioning at school um the justification for these really extreme actions is well we're presuming abuse essentially that by not indulging or if the child has a fear that the transition won't be affirmed or by not indulging the affirmation you have presumed abuse well that's a big expansion of the role of the state in evaluating uh, appearance. And so, you know, again, I'm not saying these are the same thing morally. I'm not even saying they're the same thing in uh, aggregate legal consequence. But whenever you do something like expand definitions of, of abuse 
beyond currently existing parameters and then say, well, that's, we're going to remove children from homes in the event of abuse. Well, what's abuse? Well, that's a malleable thing. That's a malleable definition. You're, you're in a dangerous place. Um, you're in a dangerous place. And, and I think that that's a, that's a real problem that, um, we're that, you know, as we're talking about these debates that you have to reckon with, how much are we going to change the very protective doctrine that we have for protecting parents' authority over the care of their children and the raising of their children over these culture war issues? And I'm saying you need to be really, really, really careful, especially since, Jonah, there are other ways to deal with this. And and I think that that's a, so I'm very concerned about what's happening on the parents' rights front in the culture war. I'm very concerned what's happening on free speech in the culture war, where it's not enough to say I'm against X or Y. You're then going to intrude upon traditional constitutional rights to make sure that you can um, punish or ban X or Y. Well, look, I mean, the GOP frontrunner has just vowed to run on the campaign of I am your retribution. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, we, we, can, we, can, we're, we're running over time, so we're not going to wait further. I mean, I, 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 I swear I am not trying to get you canceled by the New York times, uh, <laughs> by doing all of this. So we'll do something safer for the last couple of minutes. Um, we can talk about anything. Um, well, I was going to talk about Ukraine, like very quickly, how are you feeling about Ukraine? Um, yeah, boy, that's a really good question. I, my, my basic concern with Ukraine is that Ukraine's defense depends on two things, one of which is not questioned right now, uh, and the other one, which the other, the other aspect, which is questionable. So Ukrainian valor and Ukrainian courage and willingness to confront the Russians is unquestionable at this point. I mean, you know, that they have that nation has demonstrated courage beyond our imagination uh, in front of the in in the front of this unbelievable brutal assault. Now, all the courage in the world won't stop Russia if they run out of artillery shells, if they don't have the equipment, if they don't have the tech, if they don't have what they need to overcome both a manpower advantage on the part of the Russians and an industrial advantage on the part of the Russians in a, in a long war. So where I'm, I am very concerned with the deteriorating support for Ukrainian aid amongst the larger American public broadly and the right wing more specifically, because that's where you're seeing most of the deterioration. And, and to me, you know, I think there are a lot of people who've sort of declared a premature victory that, look, Russia didn't get what it wanted. Russia's taken huge losses. Russia can't accomplish what it wants. Now we need to really think about unwinding and winding out, uh, out, unwinding our support. I think that is incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And, you know, Russia seems to be in this for the long haul. And if we're not in it to the long haul as well, all of that early support that we gave and all of the early losses that were inflicted on the Russian military um, will seem like an empty, uh, a very empty consolation if, in fact, Ukraine, Ukraine does lose this war, if, in fact, say, the Zelensky government does fall, and all of that stuff is still in play. Yeah, I, I agree with entirely with that. I am somewhat, I mean, I go back and forth. You know, basically, my mood on Ukraine changes with the latest conversation on the Telegraph's 
Ukraine podcast. But um, there is this, uh, there was a piece in The Economist about this, and um, and I was talking to a foreign policy guy about this. There is this sense that it is dawning on Russian, or not Western policymakers, foreign policy guys, that the Russian offensive looks like this is it, and it's kind of a fizzle, and which is really amazing. And that there is an actual opportunity here to sort of stop doing this layaway installment plan. You know, we'll talk about tanks, get tanks, then we'll talk about planes, but actually give them the stuff that they need to win. And if if that actually happens, then, um, you know, my mood goes up about it. But do you have an operational theory about on the on the sort of populist right? about why this, I, I have a policy, we, do, we should not be talking about Candace Owens, right? But like like Candace Owens has this- Why she wants to punch Zelensky? Yeah, she says this thing about she wants to punch Zelensky in the face and then she quotes him out of context to make it sound like he's demanding America send troops, which is not what he said. We did a fact check about it. It's just a lie. She had to know it was a lie or at least somebody on her staff had to know it was a lie, you know? And, um, but like, what is the, what is your theory about why- this is the hill they want to die on. And and to the point, well, I mean, Candace Owens is dishonest because she's dishonest, but there are a lot of people who you wouldn't think necessarily would be dishonest who just have decided that, you know, this, this is not our fight. It is not on our interest. Putin's a good guy. Do you have a theory about it? I have a multifaceted theory about it. Um, so, a lot of this is rooted in what you might want to call the MAGA extended universe uh, story and theory of the world. And so part of the MAGA extended universe story and theory of the world, the story part of it is really puts Ukraine in a villain posture. That Ukraine is a corrupt country that Ukraine was, for example, through Burisma paying off the Biden family there's even, uh, and I don't know if you remember this from the wilder days of the 2019 impeachment, but you know, part of what Trump was trying to secure from Zelensky wasn't just the investigation of Hunter Biden, but this mythical server that allegedly existed in Ukraine that was going to blow open, you know, various conspiracy theories about RussiaGate. So you had the Russia, you know, controversy. So you have a kind of story about Ukraine that where Ukraine is in a villain posture and part of the MAGA extended universe, that's one part of it. Then you have another part of what you might call the Christian nationalist or nationalist conservative extended universe that sort of has said, and this is where you're going to get, you're going to see some rhetoric um, from, you know, folks like uh, Rod Dreher and others where Vladimir Putin correctly diagnosed the weakness of the woke West and that Vladimir Putin had become over time a kind of masculine, muscular defender of Christian civilization. And, and in this clash between Ukraine and Russia was like a proxy between the clash between a more muscular, explicitly Christian vision of civilization and the woke Western vision of civilization. Not that Ukraine is a super woke country, but it was definitely leaning towards the EU. And so part of this, there's a theory of the case that Vladimir Putin actually was showing, was a, a 
a person who demonstrated the strength the West lacked. And, and Jonah, I'm sure you saw things like Ted Cruz tweeting a contrast between a Russian military recruitment ad, this is before the war, and a U.S. cartoon from TikTok. Now, I'm not going to defend the U.S. recruiting cartoon from TikTok. It was super cringe. But that's hardly representative of all of our recruiting for the military. But it was sh really showing that, look, this is what this is how this is what strength looks like versus this is what weakness looks like. And then you have the absolute demolition of that narrative since February 24th. It turns out that Putin isn't some sort of masculine, muscular defender of Western civilization. It turns out that the woke West can still fight and that people who lean towards the woke West can still fight. And that it turns out that if any, if you ever were going to call Russia any kind of Christian civilization, you'd have to question what Christianity meant then because it's been brutal and downright genocidal. And it's the explosion of a whole sort of theory of the case about the contrast between sort of the muscular world and the woke, weak Western world. And so you've got the Ukraine stuff, you've got the the theory of the case that's been sort of blown up about the confrontation between Russia and the West. Um, you know, and then you have just pure contrarianism. Uh, Biden is in power. Biden is pumping weapons into Ukraine. We have a world of negative polarization. People, you see this all the time on Twitter, uh, people that a lot of folks on the right really didn't like rallied to Ukraine's side and they put the little Ukraine flag in their bio and so then all of a sudden Ukraine becomes, quote unquote, the current thing and sort of right, you know, on super online world talk. So you've got this contrarianism. And then I think the least important factor of all of this is actually coherent strategic thought. <laughs> I do think that there is a strategic argument that essentially says. Over time, we're going to be throwing good money after bad. We're going to be uh, risking greater escalation in a conflict with a nuclear power that is absolutely intent on expanding its sphere of influence. And as much as we may not like it, it's just foolish and dangerous for us to get much more intertwined in this. But of all of the factors that I talked about, that's the, the one that matters the least uh, to the most people. Yeah, so let's take the most serious one of them in the time we got left, uh, which is this don't provoke, it's a distraction, don't provoke them, blah, 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 provoking is bad, blah, 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 blah. I get some of those arguments. I don't I don't think that they are superficially dismissible. I think that they're, you know, um, but there is this weird contrast, which has not gotten enough attention, I think, which is that if you take all of the arguments about provoking Russia, right? And you just then listen to what the very same people say about what we should do about China. It's the exact opposite argument, right? I mean, it's like, we should do all this stuff to provoke China. We should shoot down their balloons. We should like, you know, like um, kick all the Chinese out of our universities. We should do all of these things to say that we are in a civilizational war with these people and blah, blah, blah. And look, I agree with a lot of stuff about like confronting China. Don't get me wrong. But like, you can't have this don't poke the bear thing about Russia and then go 10 times more hawkish about China, which is a more formidable foe than yeah. Russia is. Yeah. Don't, Just poke, don't poke the bear, but poke the hell out of the dragon is a weird formulation. Yeah. And no, you're, you're absolutely right. And then the other answer though, that they would give is they might say, okay, but 
China is far more dangerous. We we should refocus on China. All of the resources we're pour, pouring into stopping Russia are waste of time. So that's a that's an argument where they might say, look, this is just risk analysis. Russia's proven to be a lot less dangerous than we thought, which is dubious considered they actually launched a massive aggressive war that is costing you know, lives now in the hundreds of thousands, according to best estimates. If you're looking at total combined casualties. Um, that's pretty darn dangerous to me. But they're saying, look, we have to really reorient around China. And this is we're draining our coffers when it comes to Ukraine, which, again, like just to put this in perspective, I think we've only spent about 5% of our defense budget, an amount of money equivalent to about 5% of our defense budget helping Ukraine. This is not something that's beyond our capacity in any way, shape, or form. But yeah, you're right. Um, but a lot of those same people who are like, let's poke the dragon and don't poke the bear also, also are part of the MAGA extended universe on some of the other issues that I talked about. Um, specifically like these critiques of the weak woke West and the um, broadcasting of the sort of the Russian strength and masculinity by contrast. And, and so there's just more going on with a lot of these folks than the raw, which one's more dangerous, Russia or China and orient that way. All right. Just very quickly, how are you feeling about the last of us? Have you caught up with it? I'm not caught up. Uh, not all the way. I mean, look, you know, at some point I I'm, I'm trying to compare it to peak walking dead and I'm going to put it because peak walking dead was pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I, I, I'm putting it at basically where I am as equivalent to peak walking dead. And I would probably feel better about it if I hadn't seen so much zombie fiction. Yeah. Over the last several years, there's just kind of only so much you can do with it. Right. Um, I think it's right there at the peak of the genre. Um, but it is not, it is, it is not sort of a life changing entertainment. Yeah, the, the the flashback episode, which was the one before the latest one, I thought was a big step backwards. Um, and I've had this argument with people. Um, but no, I think it's good. So like, but you saw the one with Ron Swanson, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So Sarah and I were joking about this offline about how um, my comparison was like, um, when I drive my dog to the vet, and like at the beginning, really excited about how it's we're going to the park and this is exciting and bouncing all over the car. And then and then the dog is like, wait a second, this isn't the way to the park. What's going on here? And when that episode started with like total prepper vindication of Ron Swanson and became this moving gay love story, I'm not saying that you're have any problem with the gay love story, but the bait and switch would have. I, we, I just thought it was kind of hilarious to think about, like, because I had that kind of reaction. Again, I thought it was a great episode, but it was it was like, wait a second. I want more of like Ron Swanson was right about being a prepper and, you know, less about the true meaning of love or whatever. Um, it's funny because if you're talking about like zombie fiction and dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction more generally, a lot of it is so fundamentally conservative and some really pro, you know, like the whole, pr the whole side of, Hey, he was armed and that was good. <laughs> and he, he was prepared for the apocalypse. That was all of that, you know, to use uh, the sort of online lingo codes, right. 
And then people get really mad. I saw people on the right get really mad because there was a gay love story. And it reminded me of some of the arguments over Walking Dead, which I thought Walking Dead was like a multi-season advertisement for the Second Amendment. And and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these uh, stories, you have a lot of stuff that's sort of very fundamentally conservative, as we've tra- traditionally um, called conservative, with some other p- aspects to it. You know, instead of an opposite sex love story, it's a same sex love story, or you're going to have some sort of um, controversy over some sort of political point of view expressed maybe in one episode of Walking Dead. And I'm like looking at it saying, you can paint a battleship in rainbow colors, but it's still a battleship. And that's how I feel about a lot of this sort of dystopian fiction is it's really connecting with a lot of cultural conservatism. And, and the, you know, and that's how I feel about like kind of the last of us. Yeah. I mean, like, so Paul Cantor has written, uh, was a, was a literary literature professor at UVA. I think he's retired now, but he's written a lot about pop culture and he kind of takes that approach to a lot of things where he says, if you can take a step back from like the red versus blue Republican versus Democrat kind of stuff, and actually look at the sort of the deeper cultural themes of a lot of pop culture, because a lot of American pop culture, even if it's loved by liberals is very, very small C conservative. And I think that like, and so like part of his thing about the walking dead, it was like, you know, Americans are this pragmatic can do people who don't need, you know, who don't rely on the state to do things and blah, 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 blah. And you can take or leave the analysis, but I think he's onto something in his approach. And, and this is why I've always argued that science fiction in a really fundamental way is um, conservative, small C conservative is because it needs to hold human nature as a constant. And so the environment changes and the fantastical future or fantastical past or whatever, and there's cool technology or there's dragons or whatever. But the way for the reader to relate to the actual characters is the appeal to the common human nature, which is unchanging. And I think that that's something that kind of gets lost in a lot of the epiphenomenal commentary about a lot of these things. Well, I mean, a great, a great example of that is so in a, I don't know if you remember uh, back in Avengers Endgame, there was all of this talk about how Disney was going excessively woke in Endgame because they wanted to appease feminists by having an all-female superhero charge against Thanos. You know, so there's a scene where what four or five of the female superheroes are together, and they're going to show this is woman power. They're going to charge Thanos and all of this, and that's woke. Woke. The fundamental story here was connecting with this sort of armed defense of freedom and civilization that sort of like echoes and 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 like the figure the lone figure um against thanos's entire horde in the pivotal scene of the whole movie is captain freaking america (laughs) with his battered shield by himself you know, like he's Joshua Chamberlain on top of Little Round Top in 1863. And he's confronting, you know, the last, you know, Captain America is the last hope for the world. Uh, you know, that's that's almost like American propaganda. <laughs> you know, and so a lot of it is you you kind of got to cut through a lot of the culture war fights. And when you look at the what's sort of the deepest thing going on here in a lot of science fiction, a lot of zombie fiction, a lot of 
you know, post-apocalyptic fiction is just overrun with small C conservatism. And on that note, David French, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, this was fun. I'm, I'm glad I'm, am I dead to you again right after we finish? Probably for the sake of, of rhetoric, but no, and not, <laughs> not in reality. Okay. Okay. Uh, good, good. I mean, uh, I, I'm going to be introducing you as the man who's dead to me for quite a while until you come back to the stand, the dispatch. Um, but thanks again for doing this and hope to do it again. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, so uh, David has left the studio. Um, I got to leave my hotel room and go uh, do this uh, fun uh, meetup event for dispatch members in Denver. We're going to try and do a lot more of these things going forward. Um, so keep an eye out for it. Uh, I got to admit, I missed the invite to this whole thing. I've been very, very, very uh, busy. Um, but we put a notice out, I think, in dispatch, in the morning dispatch, and uh, in the blink of an eye, uh, we hit occupancy on this. So that's a good sign. And we want to do more of these things. Um, if you want to sponsor one of these meetups someplace, uh, drop us a line. Um, you know, you can send it to, uh, Ryan at the dispatch.com, uh, for Ryan Brown, or you can send it to Steve at the dispatch.com. Or if you feel compelled to, you can send it to Jonah at the dispatch.com, but I'm going to forward it to Ryan or Steve. Um, and uh, I have more to say about all sorts of manner of things, but I think we covered a lot of ground today with David and it was great. Um, it was great to talk to him and it was great to um, uh, reanimate his dead flesh. Um, and, uh, um, and that's about it. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.